Hello and welcome to our Wednesday night Bible study as we're going through uh, the Bible, as is our way, one verse at a time, taking it all in perspective and all in context. We are in the New Testament. We uh, have started with the book of Acts. As we're going through the book of Acts, every time about in the account of the book of Acts where we believe that's when one of these epistles was written. We're going to those epistles, we're going through them, keeping it all in context, and then going back in the book of Acts and continuing on. Uh, we've already started with the uh, epistle of uh, James, epistle, fancy word for letter, that James wrote, one of the early, probably the first uh, letter written in the New Testament was by James to the church. Uh, he was the half-brother of Jesus uh, had risen to a place of prominence in the early church. Wasn't an apostle like the other guys, but the apostles didn't really want to get uh, set into situations where they were in charge of, you know, uh, dealing with the logistics of the church. And uh, from the get-go, they resisted that. When they first started having problems in the church, they got deacons and put them and said, you guys run this. And, and even with the bigger church at large, they would pull back. They let James rise up, others rise up. They just wanted to give themselves entirely to preaching and teaching, which was fabulous, okay? So, uh, so James rises up and uh, he writes the first letter, uh, which in the context, if you'll look at it, is written uh, entirely to uh, Jewish uh, Christians. That's the whole uh, context through the whole letter. Uh, because at that point, Christians that were not Jews was kind of, you know, it had already happened, but they were kind of outliers. It was still more primarily Jewish people who had become Christians. And now here you got uh, James writing to all these Jewish Christians. Then as we continue in the book of Acts, uh, Paul goes on what we call his first missionary journey. And if you'll remember, uh, by this time, Paul is hanging out at Antioch, this is where he lives, and he goes on this journey, he goes through this part of Galatia. Galatia actually is rather large. He's just in the southern part of Galatia, but in Iconium, Lystra, Derby, some of these towns where he has this great missionary outreach to these people. And then he comes back home. He's back to Antioch. He's doing great. He's back there for, I don't know, two, three years. But it doesn't take too terribly long before he starts hearing stories that other guys were coming behind where he had just been and trying to convince all of these people who'd become Christians, especially the uh, uh, Gentile people who'd become Christians, that they needed to become Jews. They needed to be circumcised and they needed to go through the law of Moses and stuff. Anyway, Paul hears about this and he is furious, livid. So the whole context of the book of uh, Galatians, the first letter that Paul wrote, this is his first letter that we have in the New Testament, uh, from Paul, uh, and he writes to these Galatian Christians, and he is furious that they've allowed themselves to get sidetracked by all this nonsense that they have to follow the Jewish customs. So Paul starts out in this very simple letter. He's mad from the get-go. <laughs> he's, he's just absolutely beside himself. And then he goes into, really, after getting after the first couple of chapters, by the third and fourth chapter, he starts getting into his reasoning, biblical reasoning from the Old Testament, why we don't have to live with the law. And it's really rather brilliant. And I think his strongest argument was when he starts talking about uh, uh, Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These, this, these are the patriarchs of the Jewish faith. Uh, all the Jews all consider themselves sons of Abraham. And Paul 
brilliantly argues that uh, if it's the law that justifies us, then how do you explain Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Because Abraham was 430 years before Moses came along who gave them the law. Very strong argument showing that they were justified as we are by faith. They didn't have any law. And then he starts to explain the reason for the law was just to keep everybody in line until the Messiah came and would empower them by the Holy Spirit to live righteously. And then that's when Paul goes into uh, uh, what happens as a result of walking in the Spirit. We don't need the rules and regulations of the law to keep us in line. We have the uh, power of God, the Spirit of God. And he goes in and starts saying how if we will walk by the Spirit, we won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. We've been talking about that. And he starts uh, talking about, you know, what happens when you walk in the flesh, all the destructive things. But then he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, all these things that he talks about will be the result. So if we will live a life filled with the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit, that is what helps us to walk victoriously as Christians, not external regulations and stuff. Um, now, some people have misinterpreted, and to this day, it actually is a problem, I think, in Christianity in the Western world at large, where many people think, well, because of such grace and stuff, we can do whatever we want. It's okay if we're immoral. It's okay if we lie. It's okay because grace covers everything. But that's not what Paul said. Paul went out of his way to say, look, the, lust, the, the, the fruit of the flesh is immorality and all these things and stuff like that. That's why we need to walk in the Spirit. And I am absolutely convinced, uh, and we've been talking more and more, more with this with the uh, pastors here at the church, that I'm convinced one of the main reasons so many Christians struggle today is they are not walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. And I think as the church, we don't emphasize, I can't even say it. No, we can't emphasize it, I can't say it. We don't emphasize it enough, and we try to come up with just programs. Now, having said that, I think it's good to have the programs because whatever it takes to help people, that's why we have our addiction classes and this classes and that classes, trying to help people, you know, the counseling and all the stuff to help people through with their struggles. But we need to be careful that we don't get too caught up in all of that because the truth of the matter is the thing that will help you live a victorious Christian life as good as any of these classes may be, is not the efforts of man that's going to help you, uh, although we want to give as much effort as we can. At the end of the day, it will be the power of the Holy Spirit. The real key to walking in love is the power of the Holy Spirit. The key to living victoriously over addictions is the power of the Holy Spirit. The key to overcoming grief and some of these things that we have classes for at the end of the day, as much practical information as we'll give you, the real key is the power of the Holy Spirit. The key over lust, the power of the Holy Spirit. So again, I think even our church here at Celebration Church, we're, we're kind of challenging ourselves to make sure that we are emphasizing this strong enough. Otherwise, we how are we different than the rest of the world? I mean, they all have their programs and their AAs and this and that, or they have all their programs, and God bless them. Whatever it takes to help people not live destructively, I'm all for but that's not what Christianity really is all about. Christianity is supposed to be people who live by this glorious power of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And in doing so, Paul says, then you don't have these problems because the power of the Holy Spirit enables you. That's why we don't need the law, okay? So we get to verse, uh, chapter five, 
verse 24, and he wraps it up saying, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. The things we try to have all these programs for to help people with their passions and desires. Okay, but at the end of the day, if we really walk with Christ, that stuff is supposed to get crucified in our lives. And he says, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Okay, so now he's basically finished this whole talk about, uh, you know, circumcision and the law and why we don't need the law because we have the power of the Holy Spirit and stuff. And now for the next little piece of the letter, he starts going into just basic general Christian encouragements and stuff, much like the uh, letter that James wrote. If you remember James, it's just a collection of, you know, this thought and that thought, and he jumped from one thought to the other, dramatically kind of like the book of Proverbs or something from the Old Testament where he was giving these different encouragements. So now Paul, having made his passionate case, takes a breath, calms down, and starts to write some of these encouragements. But he still <laughs> goes back to it at the end. He still ends up, you know, going back to this thing, but he breaks away from it for a little bit here. And it starts at verse uh, 26, which I think is really where chapter six should start. Like anybody cares what I think. You have to remember all these chapters and verses, numbers were all added hundreds of years later, uh, just for a point of reference. And whoever did the breaks and stuff did what he thought was a, uh, I can't remember the guy's name, it's one guy or something like that that came up with all this stuff, where there were natural breaks and... uh, I think he thought the next phrase that says, talks about brothers and sisters was the break, but really the break from the talk happens at 26. So now we start uh, chapter five, verse 26. I think it should be six verse one, but it's not. So now he just starts talking about different things. So he gives a word of encouragement. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying one another. Good Christian encouragement. Why? Because if we get too obsessed by our own ideas and our own perspectives, we will provoke and envy each other. You get, the, you get this power thing going where you provoke someone else or you envy what someone else has or thinks or what position they might hold and, and it creates those problems. Paul was well aware that if you have a, a small opinion of yourself, you generally don't do those things. It's only when we get so full of our own estimations and we're so sure we're right. Of course, everybody thinks they're right or you wouldn't think what you think. Doesn't mean that you're right. It just means you think that you're right. And as Christians, we need to be intentionally kind of batting that down a bit and uh, and try to be a little bit more humble so that we don't irritate each other. Now, chapter six, verse one, again, this is, he's going into these little, Encouragements. Now he says, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently, but watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. It's a great admonition. Really easy to sit down and point at other people and say, man, look at that, what that guy did, and look what she said, and that guy committed an affair, and all of these terrible things. No, 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 take it easy. You have to remember, anybody is capable of anything given the right circumstances, period. And the minute you think that it won't happen to you, that's when you're in big trouble. That's why we're supposed to pray, 
Lead us not into temptation. Keep us away from these circumstances because given the right circumstances, me or any one of you are capable of doing almost anything. So again, another appeal to humility. Uh, don't be arrogant and provoking each other and be humble when you see someone make a mistake or fall in sin. Go to them and gently encourage them back into the ways of God. And you know, and I, I love our church. I think this really tends to be the way that we approach things um, here at Celebration Church. I know there's people that fall into all kinds of things or people who'll come forward and admit things they're just so ashamed of. And, and I've never seen anything in our church other than an attitude of reaching out to people and humbly encouraging them. You don't get a lot of, you know, how could you do such a thing? And that, you know, because we get it. Given the opportunity, this can happen to any of us. So you're supposed to just encourage each other and do it gently. Um, Next thought, he says, carry each other's burdens and in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. Now, there's not a law like the Old Testament law, but a way of living is what he's talking about. It's like the Old Testament way of living. There's a New Testament way of living, which is driven by the Spirit of God and the teachings of Jesus, but it's not like, like the Old, Old Testament law. It refers to it as the law of Christ. So we're supposed to carry each other's burdens and fulfill uh, Christ's uh, teachings in our lives. Now, hold that thought because <laughs> we're going to get a contra- contrary uh, statement in just a second here. So supposed to, everybody's supposed to carry each other's burdens. Now, he says, if anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Again, all of these things, don't be arrogant. Don't be arrogant. If I see someone fall in sin, don't be arrogant. And don't think more of yourself than you ought. There's supposed to be an intentional humility among people of faith. And when I say intentional, I literally mean intentional. You have to kind of work at it. Don't ever think that you're so smart and you're so right and you have the exact doctrinal view that everybody else should have. You know, just a little more humility. I get everybody's convinced the way they think is right or you wouldn't think that way. But you just need to be uh, humble about it. Then he says, each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. For each should carry their own load. Wait a minute. You just said we're supposed to carry each other's loads. That's what he just says, right? Carry each other's burdens. Then here he says, everyone should carry their own burden. Contradiction. The Bible's full of contradiction. You know, it's not. It's just you got to look at things from two different angles. On the one hand, yes, we need to be responsible for ourselves. The kingdom of God will never be strong if everybody needs somebody else to hold them up every five seconds. You need to get to a place where you can be strong. On the other hand, we should be there to help carry each other's burdens at times that you might be stumbling and falling or you're just not very strong in your faith yet or at a particular time. We should be there for you. So it's not contradictory. It can seem that way, obviously, but it's, it's just that both are true. We need to be able to carry our own weight and the good news is we should be surrounded by people who can help us carry <laughs> our own weight. All right? Uh, so anyway, what he's saying is everyone should touch their own actions. Then you can take pride in yourself without comparing yourself to somebody else. Now you be responsible for yourself. And then next he says, nevertheless, the one who receives instruction in the word 
should share all good things with their instructor. What is he saying? He just said, listen, you should be able to stand on your own two feet, test your own actions, see what's good. Don't compare yourself to other people. You need to be responsible for yourself. Nevertheless, we should be able to receive instruction from others in the word. Again, some of this seems, you know, it's kind of like a, looking at it over here and then looking at it over here. It can seem a little contradictory, but it's not. Uh, we, again, we do need to be responsible. You need to learn on your own. You don't need someone else to be telling you stuff all the time. At the same time, nevertheless, he says, there is time for instruction, which is what I'm doing to you right now. And what he says is the one who receives instruction in the word should share all good things with their instructor. Again, this is the first epistle uh, written by Paul in the New Testament. And, uh, uh, and just the only one that beat before it was, uh, was James. And, and this is the first inclination in writing, talking about supporting financially those who minister in the word. The receiver should share the good things, the financial resources that he has with his instructor. So this is the first in inclination that we have and we'll get more of it uh, in later writings that uh, he who ministers in the word has every right to be supported financially by those who are being ministered to. And Paul talks about it uh, much stronger later on in other letters, although he himself went to great lengths to explain, even though I have the right to be supported by you guys, I'm glad I never did. Because he intentionally worked by his own hands, which we'll read. If you're not sure what he did for a living, we'll show you in a little bit in the book of Acts. It shows us how he earned his own money when him and his crew was traveling around uh, the world. Uh, but he didn't take offerings, as best as we can tell, uh, to support himself and his team. They basically worked themselves just now they had every right, and he'll say this later, we'll read, I believe when we get to Corinthians, that he had every right, as he says here, to be supported by the people who that they're ministering to should take care of them financially. But he intentionally said, I didn't do it so I could never be accused of trying to get anything from anybody or to, you know, someone say, I'm just in it for the money or, or anything along those lines. He just wanted to live so high above, the, the standard was here. He tried to live above the standard. Well, he didn't try, he did. Uh, just so that uh, he could uh, not be free of any kind of uh, hint of impropriety in, in any financial way. All right? So there, carry each other's burdens, carry your own stinking burden, <laughs> take care of yourself, but yet help share financially with those who help take care of you. So it's all all together, which is, again, the Christian experience. Let instruction come in your life, but don't just expect that. Which, by the way, and we've pretty much beaten this out of our congregation, uh, but things like this pop up from time to time. But when Christians say comments like, I'm not getting fed, or I'm not getting everything I need, you know, but really, I got to tell you, in being a Christian for almost 45, I think about 45 years now, I have been in great churches and I've been in terrible churches. I've sat with wonderful pastors and some that for years I have no idea what they ever said ever. Sitting on the front row and just going, <laughs> but never, ever, ever did I ever go around complaining I wasn't getting fed. You know why? Because you're supposed to feed yourself. At some point, 
you should be strong enough that you can feed yourself, just like your children. When they're little, you have to feed them. But if they're 18 and you're still feeding them, you're a moron, all right? The kid, there's something wrong with him. So you got to get to the place where you can feed yourself. Now, if you've been a Christian for a while and you still come to church and you still really get things out of it, great. But even if you come, you don't get anything out of it, so what? That's not your concern anymore. You get to a place of maturity, you should now be more interested in encouraging and blessing other people. All right? All right. Verse seven, one verse I have preached many times and just preached on this last Sunday here at Celebration Church. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. And I have beaten this horse and will continue to beat it. It is stunning to me how many people in the world today, especially in the United States of America, have no connection between what they do and what they get. They don't understand what they get. And you point out what they're doing is why they're, oh, what do you mean? Uh, oh, you're saying it's my fault. I'm saying you reap what you sow. If your life stinks, it's because you're doing stinking things. We don't hate you for it, but let's show you what to do. You got to do the right thing. And I'm saying how many people, they don't want to do anything. They just want to make sure they get the right stuff. And it's a, a, a mentality of entitlement. There's people in our country today who don't want to work for a living. They just want the government or somebody else to take care of them, tax the rich or whatever their whole little routine is because it's somebody else's fault and I shouldn't have to be responsible for what I do in life. No, 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 you need to be responsible for what you do and get in life. He builds on this. He says, whoever sows to, us, to please his flesh will from the flesh reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the spirit from the spirit will reap eternal life. All right, so that's the next chunk of information he gives to that church. You reap what you sow. Then he comes up with another thought. He says, let us not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Oh my goodness. There's a sermon you could preach right there. Don't give up. Don't get discouraged because things don't happen as quickly as you think. You will win. You will succeed. You will reap if you just hang in there and don't give up. And that's what Paul's saying to them. And then uh, his final thought here uh, in this little section, as he gets ready to finish the letter, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. So our number one priority is if you have opportunity, you should do something for believers, other Christians. But you should really be able to do good things for other people. And uh, he says, uh, well, you know, question, well, when, Pastor, when should I do it? He says, when you have opportunity. You should be looking for opportunities. Every time you have the opportunity to do something good or kind for someone, you should do it. You should do it for people who are not Christians, but primarily for Christians. I know people who actually think the opposite. They would much more support and encourage someone who doesn't know Jesus and criticize their own Christian brother. You know, no, 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 no. We do share the gospel and love and kindness to unbelievers, but even more importantly, that we do it with people of faith. That's one of the things that's important as being part of a Christian community is that we share with each other and we should be there to help each other with their needs. And you find that out by talking with each other and communicating with each other. Uh, God wants to use people to bless you right here in the church, but they can't do it if they don't know your name or you don't ever talk to them. All right, so you've got to get connected with people. All right, so he calms down for a little bit and gives us these James-like instructions. 
do this, do that. Don't be conceited. Take care of yourself, but support those who take care of you. You know, uh, you reap what you sow. Don't give up, hang in there. All these little encouragements. But then he goes back to, I think, he must write these things in bits and pieces and sits there and thinks for a little bit. And it doesn't take long before he starts remembering what set off this whole letter. Ugh! These people who've been trying to tell you that you have to be circumcised. So then he says in verse 11, do you see what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand? Exclamation point. Now I cannot begin to, and it wouldn't take very long for you to go online and just Google this verse. And the number of theologians who come up with the theory that Paul had an eye problem. That he had an eye problem because that's why he's writing with big letters. And they think he, you should hear the theories of the medical theories. Of the, seriously? I mean, how dense can these people be? He is furious writing to these people. Now, I know we all sit and we, you know, type with our thumbs now or with our fingers and, you know, emails and texts, which always gets us in trouble one way or the other. But, you know, when you're writing by hand, if you've ever done this and you're really mad, you tend to write bigger, right? The way we do that today is we throw more emojis into it or whatever we got to do to express our particular passion. It would appear to me that whoever most of these Bible scholars are, God bless them. Listen, God uses everybody. It just doesn't use obnoxious people like me. Thanks be to God. Let's face it. People who are by nature studious PhDs that look into the nano meanings of Greek and Hebrew words and translate them into other things. These aren't exactly what you would call party people, all right? You know, they're just, they're academics. The derogatory term would be pinheads, but that's being derogatory. They're hardworking people, but they tend to lack passion, at least the ones I know. They, don't, they tend to be very even-tempered people. That's, they're the people who can sit in a class for eight hours and just listen to one, you know, philosophy teacher after another blather on and catch all the nuances and take notes. God bless them. It's not a slam. It's a slam for my work. Like, you know, I can't. You start blathering to me in five minutes, I'm going into a coma. Somebody wake me up when the guy's done talking. If you don't got some kind of passion or energy when you talk, then I just can't listen to you. People often say to me, Pastor, I love that you have some passion and energy when you talk. Uh, it helps me stay awake. And I often say, I don't do it for you. I'm trying to, trying to keep myself awake. Because <laughs> if I sit here and blather, I'll start nodding off. All that to say, I think a lot of these guys, they just don't understand. They're very limited. Now, intellectually, they would say they understand passion. But, you know, Latinos understand passion. You know, Italians understand passion. Spaniards understand, understand passion. Middle Eastern people understand passion. I don't know what these people's background is, but they don't, they don't understand. I don't think it's their first inclination to understand passion. You know, they don't get mad. And when they get mad, they raise their voice slightly. They don't yell like some normal people like us tend to yell. All that to say, I think a lot of these theologians and, you know academic scholars, they see Paul talking about writing with large letters. He, oh, he, he, must, he must not have been able to see. They don't get it. The guy's just mad. Do you see how ticked off I am? 
is what he's saying here. Because then he goes right back into what set him off in the first place. Those who want to impress people by the means of the flesh are trying to compel you to be circumcised. He goes right back to it, see? The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not even those who are circumcised keep the law, yet they want you to be circumcised, that they, circumcised, that they might boast about your circumcision in the flesh. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means jack squat. What counts is the new creation, being a new person in Christ. Amen. So he says, peace and mercy to all who follow this rule and to the Israel of God. Now, from now on, let no one cause me trouble. I don't want any more grief from you people is what he's saying. He's really, I mean, he's just now had this huge emotional bloodletting over this. It's really stunning how angry he got this early yet into his ministry because he's got a lot to go through yet. That's just, just the tip of the spear. You know, remember he got stoned. They thought he was dead. He's been arrested, had the snot kicked out of him. He's, he's basically saying, don't give me any more grief for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. I've had the snot kicked out of me. I don't need you to kick the snot out of me as well, is what he's saying. And then he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers and sisters. Amen. And that, my dear friends, is the end of that letter. Again, I find it one of the most entertaining letters in the New Testament just because he's so angry. Remember some of the highlights from the letter. He starts out by saying, these people who are doing this, I wish they'd go to hell. And then he says, I don't care who you are. And he starts talking about when Peter was acting like a hypocrite and he rebuked Peter. And a little bit later, he says, these people who want you to get circumcised, I wish they'd go the whole way and cut their wieners off altogether. I mean, this is, besides from being entertaining to me, it's kind of shocking. That's how angry he is. He is livid beyond measure, and then finally wraps the letter. He calms down a little bit while he's talking these nice general exhortations, but then he ends back with, Ugh! I don't want to hear any more about this, is what he's saying. You know what I'm talking about? Sometimes you yell at somebody and say, okay, listen, I'm, we're done. I don't want to have to deal with this anymore. This should be the end of it. And that's how he ends his letter. Now we go back into the book of Acts, chapter 15. Now, it says here, certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved, which is the very thing that set Paul off in the first place. Now, it says they came down uh, from Jerusalem. On the map, it's going up. But in their viewpoint, this was the high point of the world and anything from there was going down. All right, so what it's saying is if they were more like we think, we say, hey, these guys came up from Jerusalem. No, they came down from Jerusalem and they come to Antioch and they start telling these Christians that they have to do the very thing that Paul had just been telling these guys they don't have to do. Well, now it sets off a big fight and they all head to Jerusalem. In verse two, it says, this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp 
dispute and debate with them, as you can imagine, how the kind of debate he was having with the Galatians. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other brothers, to go up to Jerusalem, down, to see the apostles and elders about this question. Now, as I said to you when we first looking at, at Galatians, uh, a lot of people think that, uh, remember at the beginning of Galatians, Paul talks about this trip that he makes to Jerusalem. And they think that this is the trip and that the book of Galatians was written after this trip. For a variety of reasons, I don't think that was the case, uh, which I'll, I'll point to as we go along here. Uh, it's not the end of the world one way or the other, but I, I just think that, uh, remember, in, in Acts, he's not telling everything that happens. Remember when he talks about Saul getting converted, and then he starts preaching, and then they're trying to kill him, and then he's got to be let down uh, the city gates in a basket, and then he runs to Jerusalem. It sounds like that all happened like in two, three weeks. When you read Galatians, you see Paul tell the story. That was three years. It wasn't two, three weeks. It was, it, was, it was like it all happened in two or three days. It was like three years. And Paul talks about how he went off into uh, uh, Arabia, Saudi Arabia, out probably into the desert or whatever uh, to uh, just get close to Christ. Where, I'm sorry, he was here in Damascus, goes out over here, uh, has revelations, prays of, comes back, starts preaching and teaching. Eventually, they try and kill him, and then he makes the run for Jerusalem. This is like three years later. So we know, based on Paul's retelling, that Luke, in his account telling, is just hitting highlights. He's not giving us the play-by-play. Oftentimes, when you read the book of Acts, you get the sense that all this is happening really fast. I mean, and it is happening comparatively really fast, but we're talking years are clicking off here, all right? You know, we're like 14 years or so, whatever the number is, uh, since Paul's even been converted till we get to this point. So it's not all, you know, overnight kind of stuff that is happening. Uh, so anyway, uh, the reason why we don't think Paul's description of the uh, trip that he made is the same as what we're reading here is because th- they describe two different kinds of meetings and they d- describe two different results from the meeting. So our opinion is, it doesn't matter if you think otherwise. There's a bunch of theologians that think both ways. Our thinking is that Paul comes back. He hears about this. He writes this letter to the Galatians. He's sticked. That's when Peter had come up and Paul had to rebuke him for being a hypocrite. And then he had gone down and they had wrestled this out with the apostles. Remember the conclusion of that meeting was the apostles basically said, look, you, you just go to the Gentiles and we'll stay to the Jews. That was the conclusion of the meeting that Paul talks about. And he goes back up here. And now we read that people came up here, started giving them more grief and they had this big fight. And now they're headed down for this big meeting in Jerusalem. All right. So verse three, the church sent them on their way. And as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem for this big hubbub meeting, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. This was no big settled deal. Even after Paul's letter off to these Galatians, they weren't getting the letter down here. They weren't listening to the arguments. And they were convinced. Now, these guys were believers. They were part of the church, but they were also part of the Pharisees yet. And uh, again, 
especially in Jerusalem, the bulk of the church was made up of Jewish people who were celebrating Jesus as the Messiah and spreading to other Jewish communities all throughout the area. But on the side, all of a sudden, all these Gentiles start turning to Christ. Eventually, we all know, Christianity becomes overwhelmingly received by the Gentile world. And within 200 to 400 years later, there's almost no Jewish Christians to speak of at all. And, uh, and now everybody thinks in terms of Christianity and Judaism being totally separate. Uh, but that wasn't the way it was here. Uh, in the beginning, people basically thought of Christianity is just another version of Judaism. You had the Sadducees, you had the Pharisees, and yet you had the Christians. They, they all thought it was a Judaism one way or the other until the differences started becoming more and more stark. So anyway, these guys get up. They're part of the church. They're yelling and saying, listen, you... <laughs> King James Bible says they had no small dispute, which means it was a big argument. Again, these translators and these newer things kind of take the edge off of everything because I just think these guys, I don't know who these translators were. I think they're passionless academics. But anyway, these, uh, this meeting they have is intense and they're all going at it. And these believers who are Pharisees, part of the Pharisees group, gets up and just starts railing and says they have to obey the Old Testament law and they have to be circumcised. That was all part of the argument. That's those are the guys who went up there and started giving them grief. So this is the debate before these guys. They have to make a decision. What are we going to do? Either Christians, when they become Christians, must convert to Judaism first or as a result of turning to Jesus. Then they become Jews. Whatever the order was, that wasn't a big deal to them. But now you have to be circumcised and you have to obey the law of Moses and you got to do all the stuff we've been doing as Jews. Either they do or they don't. And this is a major meeting in the life of the early church. This is no small gathering. What they decide here will affect how Christianity is presented to the world. Now, what's really interesting about this, and those of you who have listened to me much know, uh, one of the things that irritates me to no end is people who claim to be so spiritual and say, well, God told me this and God told me that and just do what the Lord says. And they ignore the Bible. They don't really, they, they just do whatever God tells you to do, whatever. It was like the guy who comes to me feels bad because he's committing adultery. I said, what are you doing? He said, well, my Christian friends said, just pray about it and do what the Lord tells me to do. Really? What kind of insanity is this? We know you're not supposed to do something. Someone tells you that, you don't tell them to pray about it and do what the Lord tells them to do. You tell them to stop. Someone's stealing, you tell them to stop. Someone's breaking the law, you tell them to stop. Someone who's lying, cheating, committing adultery, you tell them to stop. You don't need a revelation on all of this. And here's what's really interesting. With a big question like this, would you not think that they would all just stop and fast and pray and wait for God to tell them what to do, right? This is what we hear today. Everybody's so spiritual today. Let's wait for the Lord to tell us what to do. No, I'm not saying they didn't pray, but they knew they had to make a decision. Jesus, at some point, see, these apostles knew this because they told him, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. You need to make decisions. It's amazing to me 
how so many Christians, their point of Christianity, if you listen to people today, just do what God tells you to do. Do what God tells you to do. Pray and ask God what to do. Pray and ask God what you want to do. And there's millions of Christians today. They're frozen in fear. They can't make decisions. They can't do anything because they're just waiting for God to tell them what to do. When Jesus never did that, what did Jesus do? He says, you ask God what you want him to do. Now, obviously, you wouldn't go against God's word, but that's what, ask the Father. If two or three of you would agree, as anyone think, knock, keep on knocking, ask, keep on asking, seek, keep on seeking, and you will find. It will be open to you. You will get your answer. You have to, so the early church still understood this concept. They weren't part of 21st century Christianity that's waiting for God to tell them everything to do. They understood the teachings of the apostles. They knew the teachings of Jesus in the gospels. They knew the instruction of the uh, uh, apostles and stuff that we're reading in these epistles is very powerful. They had to make a decision. A lot of Christianity today, today is just embarrassing to me. The number of people who refuse to make decisions, filled with fear and cowardice, insecure about who they are and what they know about the scriptures, and they justify it with this spiritual sounding horse manure that they make sound so beautiful because they say pray about it but they can't make a decision and won't advise anybody else on what to do. You will notice they don't do this. And this is a big stinking deal. They knew they had to make a decision. All right, I'm done beating that horse to death. So these guys say, listen, they got to get circumcised. Then the apostles and elders met together to consider the question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago, remember when Peter had that vision about you know, how he needs to accept uh, the Gentiles and stuff. Brothers, you know, some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. Remember, he went to the house of Cornelius. He didn't even want to be there. I shouldn't be with you people. You're Gentiles. He starts preaching. All of a sudden, the Holy Spirit falls out, starts speaking in tongues, just like they got when they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Their conclusion was, listen, man, if they're getting saved, if God's accepting them, then we must accept them. Uh, verse nine, uh, he did not discriminate between us and them for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do we try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved just as they are. Then, verse 12, the whole assembly became silent as they listened now to Barnabas and Paul, telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles to them on that first trip through Galatia and stuff like that. When they finished, James spoke up uh, and he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. <laughs> now I kind of giggle when I see this because what you just hear is Peter stood up and made his argument. Then Paul, which we just read in Galatians, got up and made his argument. He's brilliant, right? And then James got up and says, well, you know what Peter said? <laughs> if I'm Paul, I'm going, hey, am I Swiss cheese? But he goes right back to uh, Peter. He calls him Simon. Simon, Peter, you know. Uh, and and what, did, what did Paul call Cephas. Simon Peter, Simon, Cephas. <laughs> He's got three different versions of his name. It's all the same guy talking about Peter. So 
Simon is described to us how God had, you know, spoken to him. In verse 15, the words of the prophets are in agreement with this as it is written. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins will I rebuild and will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, things known from long ago. So, they go to the scriptures. As I said, you don't see them just praying and waiting for God to tell them something. They look at the scriptures. They listen to argument. They use their brains. They have common sense. The anointing of the Holy Spirit, God moving in their lives. They find out what the scripture says and then they make a decision is what you're supposed to be doing with your life. And if you don't know anything, that's when you got to ask other people around you. Ask for their wisdom and insight. All right? We're supposed to make decisions, people. I cannot stress that enough. So in verse 19, he finally makes the call. It is my judgment there. What do you mean my judgment? I'm not supposed to pray about it. No, at some point he had to make the call. What's the call? What are we going to do? And they finally make this judgment. Therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are returning, who are turning to God. Therefore, thank God. Thank God. This is a big deal. If these guys had swung the other way, Every one of you would be having to convert, in essence, to Judaism so that you could find Jesus. All right? And all the men would have to get circumcised. And uh, this, you know, it would be a whole different looking church. I mean, this, I mean, this is a big thing that they decide here. And they did it rightfully because they understood by what God had been saying. The Holy Spirit had spoken to Peter and they put two and two together. It wasn't like they weren't listening to anything the Holy Spirit said, but they weren't just waiting for God to tell them everything to do. They looked at the context. The, God had spoke to us about this here and look at the miracles he did with the Gentiles here and look what the Bible says in the Old Testament about Gentiles there. Therefore, we make a decision. And the decision is, no, they don't have to convert to Judaism Thanks be to God. All right. Instead, we should write to them, he says, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. This is the official ruling of the church at that time to the rest of us who are not Jewish. Four things that we're supposed to take from the Old Testament. One is we're not supposed to eat food offered to idols, which is just not an issue today. (laughs) Unless they're doing something in the back room over at festival I'm not aware of. Uh, Supposed to stay away from sexual immorality. Okay, that's very clear. Uh, We're supposed to stay away from the meat of strangled animals. Uh, The way animals are killed and butchered, you know, they're bled out. Uh, You can kill them and not bleed them out, which makes everything... You think a medium rare steak is juicy. You got no idea what it would be like if they weren't bled out in the first place. That's supposed to eat meat like that. And we're not supposed to be eating and drinking blood, uh, which is always curious to me because in many Christian cultures like, you know, in Northern Europe and stuff, they have blood sausage, blood puddings, actually made from the blood of animals that they eat. Uh, they're supposed to be Christian nations. They're not supposed to do this stuff. Again, I don't think it's a big deal. I don't know anybody around here who wants to sit down and have a blood sandwich for lunch. But these are the things we're not supposed to do. Now, what's interesting, where does he get this from? Why did they make this decision? Because if you look back in the law of Moses, these were the same things that the Gentiles were supposed to do if they were in their midst. If a Gentile was in the midst of the Israelites, they weren't supposed to eat food offered to idols. They were supposed to abstain from sexual immorality. They weren't supposed to eat blood and all these kind of things. 
So he basically takes the most basic approach from the law, the most fundamental approach toward the Gentiles, and he now applies it to Gentile Christians. Now, what's really interesting about this is, uh, so Paul takes this and he runs with this. Now, I get very strongly the sense that Paul didn't even agree with this. And we'll see that as we get into some of his writings where, you know, he just, again, that was their ruling and he tried to honor it as much as he could. But you could tell, we'll, we'll see, well, I'll point out to you when we get there, where he just, I, he rolls his eyes even at this stuff thinking, not the sexual immorality, he's definitely against that, but the, the meat offered to idols. He just treated like it just wasn't that big a deal. The eating stuff, he went out of his way to say, you know, guys, I just, I just don't think it's a big deal. And that's when he said, you know, look, if, if it bothers you, it's going to hurt somebody else's faith and stay away from it. But he literally says, as we'll see later, I believe it's in Corinthians, to say it, it, this stuff, even this stuff shouldn't matter. So I don't know what the other guys thought of him saying that, but, you know, even Paul didn't like that. The sexual immorality, everybody had total agreement on that. As a Christian, you should not be sexually immoral. Okay, so uh, the reason he says that, remember I just said it had been taken from the law of Moses. And we see that in the next verse. The reason we're telling them is this is because the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues in every Sabbath. In other words, it's consistent with what was written by Moses that Gentiles in our midst aren't supposed to do these things. Therefore, that's all we're asking them not to do which was fine. As a believer, I don't have a problem with any of these things. I don't eat food offered to idols. I don't eat blood <laughs> or anything else. So it's the eating part of it. It's not a problem with me. This is basically the only things from the Old Testament law that fall on us in terms of eating regulations. And again, it's just not much of a problem unless you're a blood pudding person, you know, whatever. Uh, and clearly from Paul's writing later, he argues you should be able to eat anything you want. We'll get there. All right, so anyway, this is done. They finally make this decision. Then the apostles and the elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. So they chose Judas, called Barsabas, and Silas. Remember that name? That's going to become a big deal as we go along here. Silas, men who were leaders among the believers. And with them, they sent the following letter. So you stop and think about that. Again, you know, it's a different time, a different way of communicating and traveling. <laughs> Where's my camera move? Hello. Follow me. There we go. Little more. Little more. There we go. Okay. Now, uh, so it, it, they didn't, you know, just see it on video screens. They sent this letter back and they were careful to send uh, believers from there to uh, the guy, the church there, just for the verification of it. So no one could say that Paul made this up. He says, "How do we know?" I said, "Because remember, there was a considerable amount of opposition here. They're fighting big time over this issue." So they said, "Listen, this is our ruling, and just to be clear, let's send." Barsabas and Silas along with them. And that's how Silas winds up here with Paul, which will be significant because Silas is about to become a major player with Paul. <laughs> okay. So they uh, sent them back to Antioch with the following letter. Verse 23. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria and Cilicia, Cilicia, 
greetings. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization. Uh, that was their backpedaling. We never told them to do this. And disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends, Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and not to, and to us. They felt the confirmation of the Holy Spirit. But again, these are in the context of what God had been doing, what the scriptures had said, they made a decision. We decided not to burden you uh, with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to obtain from food, sacrifice to idols, and from blood, and from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. Of the four things, three of them had to do with eating rules from the Old Testament, which they said has been preached in synagogues all over the world. Everybody knows this is the basic stuff that we're supposed to avoid, so that's why they handed it to them. Therefore, uh, you will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. So that's the letter. So the men were sent off and went down to Antioch, up to Antioch on the map, where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Judas and Silas... Uh, Judas, who's also called Barsabas, and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the believers. And after spending some time there, they were sent off by the believers with the blessing of peace to return to those who had sent them. So now, uh, um, they, it says they sent these guys back. Uh, we find out in a few verses later that Silas is still there. Uh, who becomes one of these major players with Paul. So apparently Silas wasn't one of those, but whatever group came up that Silas was part of, they all went back. Apparently Silas stuck around. But uh, Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, apparently along with Silas, where they and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord. Now, uh, we're going to see. So they come back and they use this document to settle the issue. Uh, and we're going to read uh, in chapter 16 that they went around with this document to keep settling the issue. Another major reason I, along with many other, you know, I'm not a scholar like these guys, but they, you know, who agree and we believe Galatians was written before this meeting. Because if it had been after this meeting, surely in Galatians, Paul would have used that letter to make his point. Right? Because now he's using this letter from there on out. So clearly, in my opinion, Galatians was written before this big meeting. And whatever meeting Paul describes about obviously had to have happened before this meeting. That's why the way they're described seems very different. It's a meeting that Paul talks about that Luke doesn't talk about. And that's why we think that was the uh, order. All right? Then, oh, then we got problems, all right? We got problems, big problems. And uh, Paul and Barnabas have a big fight. Oh, Christians, Christians who love God, who are dedicated to the cause of Christ. Both of them who had suffered for the name of Jesus. Both of them who were major players in the kingdom of God. 
both of them who were at this meeting arguing for the freedom for the Gentiles to just serve God without all these requirements. These two wonderful, fabulous men of God go off on each other. And they have a big fight. Next Wednesday, when you come back, we will look at what the fight was all about. What happened as a result of the fight? It was kind of good uh, if, if you've ever been in an argument with another Christian. <laughs> uh, you definitely want to come back <laughs> so, so you can hear the context of this. It, it, ju it just happens. It is what it is. And, and we see these things from time to time in the book of Acts. So we'll end here. And then next Wednesday night, we'll start with this big fight with Paul and Barnabas. See what it was about, what happened, and what changed as a result. All right? We'll see you guys again next Wednesday.